sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. We have a very interesting topic today, uh, one of the latest assaults on religious liberty in our nation. Our guest today, my good friend and colleague, Greg Hamilton, president of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association. Greg, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Thank you. So you published an article in this current issue of Liberty Magazine, which I'm pleased to serve on the editorial board, the best religious liberty magazine, bar none. Uh, your article is entitled The Order of the Day, and that's the subject of our show today. Tell us about this executive order. Well, it's Executive Order 13831, which I'm sure everybody will remember. Um, <laughs> the, the order... <laughs> The order restores a Bush-era initiative that allows religious groups to be more involved in providing federally funded social services. This was put forward by President Trump and then um, Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Um, in the name of religious liberty, this is what it does. It repeals Obama administration rules that limited the ability of religious groups to use federal funds to proselytize or preach to those they serve. And thus, you know, it, it flirts with outright violation of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause provision separating church and state. The Trump order obliterates the rule whereby faith-based groups were required to refer beneficiaries to alternative programs if they objected to religious teachings while receiving services. So in other words, um, now there's just a blank check. You can receive federal money. You can re receive block, the states can receive block grants from the federal government. Um, and then passing it on to faith-based organizations, social service programs, and nobody's going to even blink. Uh, the federal government, state government is not going to blink in terms of your use of those funds to both proselytize and provide social services at the same time. So let's unpack because there's a couple of different elements here. Um, now during the, well, so the so-called faith-based initiative was initially launched during the Bush era, correct? Correct. George W. Bush, correct. And the idea was that there are social service organizations that are faith-based that should be equally eligible for government funding because they're providing services to the general public, services mm -hmm. that the government has chosen that they want to provide, right? Mm-hmm, yes. So it's kind of a, a non-discrimination idea that we don't just use secular social service agencies. We use everybody. Everybody's eligible. And the reason for that is, is that the vast majority of social service programs are private, um, non-governmental, and uh, faith-based. And um, the government's never really had a handle on on this, uh, despite the um, the great um, what was Lyndon Johnson's program. Um, the Great Society and, uh, you know, and all that. I mean, you know, not just to eliminate poverty, but really it uh, branched off into all kinds of social service programs, which they failed miserably at. And besides, they thought, why bother? The faith-based groups are doing such a good job. It's it's also tied into the whole idea that why should the federal government tax um, 
faith-based programs or churches, you know, they don't need to be taxed because they're doing such good, you know, charitable work and charitable work that the federal government can't afford to do itself. So it's uh, it's been that kind of reasoning all along. And um, so, you know, who's okay. going to... So the first problem that, you know, you and I encountered circa 2003 was mm-hmm. that the government said they would give money directly to churches, not just to groups like Catholic Charities or Lutheran Social Services or, uh, you know, the Adventist Development and Relief Agency. You know, all of the major denominations have set up separate entities. And to the extent that they get funding, they can be audited, they can be regulated, and it's all fair game. You know, what the government funds, it has a right to control and to hold accountable. The problem is if you're giving money directly to a church, then you have an obligation to audit the church and make sure the funds are being used properly. And there's a lot of entanglement with the church. So that was the first problem way back. Well, and and you have to distinguish between auxiliary programs that the church runs versus directly to the church. So, I mean, that's what they, you know, always try to um, make a distinction about. And it's a valid one. But clearly, a lot of these faith-based organizations are directly tied to denominations, and that is the the big um, question mark in a lot of people's minds. Okay. But as an attorney, if I were advising a church that wanted to start a program and go after grant money, I would say incorporate it separately. Get it set up separately so that it has separate books, separate board, et cetera, and that would be a much stronger position. But now, you know, fast forward, during the Obama administration, the person who was charged with, you know, supervising and developing the, the rules for this was Melissa Rogers, and she comes out of the Southern Baptist tradition of separation of church and state. She had been at the Baptist Joint Committee on Religious Liberty, and uh, is a law professor, very, very astute on the proper constitutional boundaries. And mm-hmm. one of the rules, as you indicated earlier, that she put into place was uh, with government funds, you cannot discriminate in how you provide services. You can't just prefer people of one religion over another. You can't make people, you know, uh, uh, sit through the sermon in order to get the soup. Right. Well, and this goes back to when I attended a Bush era faith based initiative conference in Vancouver, Washington. John DiUlio, uh, who was George W. Bush's faith based czar, uh, finished his presentation by signing general accounting office regularities or regulations designed to prevent funding, uh, from enmeshing church and state entities in compromises, especially when it comes to receiving such social services to proselytize, uh, in addition to providing social service programs uh, to the general public. And so I asked him, uh, what do you have in place um, to uh, regulate such proselytizing? And he answered very frankly that there, that was a problem, that they didn't have anything in place to regulate. And of course, there would be a great hue and cry from faith-based organizations that the federal government even tried. Um, it's ironic that shortly thereafter... Uh, okay, but, was, go ahead. But Greg... What I hear you saying is, all along, it's been agreed left, right, and center that you don't proselytize with government funding, that the government doesn't fund religious groups' efforts to make converts. That's not a proper role of the government. That's the role of the church. Well, 
All right, but tell the faith-based organizations that are receiving that money, and who's bothering to check that out? I mean, that's a problem. And uh, okay, but but here with this executive order, the the current administration is saying, "Go ahead, it's okay right. to proselytize." Exactly. So there's nothing in place. Uh, they're just they're just obliterating everything, violating directly the establishment clause, and so forth. Um, and you know, it, it, James Madison warned against this years ago, back in the founding. I mean, uh, back when he had a debate, even before the constitutional founding in 1776, that the whole debate over establishing a provision for teachers of the Christian religion came about by Patrick Henry. It was his bill. And then Thomas Jefferson challenged it with his own Virginia Act for Religious Freedom, establishing religious freedom. And he went off to Paris as the ambassador for the United States, and Madison was left behind to basically deal with the situation. And uh, he was fabulous. He came up with what's called the Memorial and Remonstrance, 15 points arguments that he put forward to rally religious minorities against Patrick Henry's bill and uh, won the day and defeated Patrick Henry's bill and established uh, religious freedom in Virginia, uh, Thomas Jefferson's bill, in 1786. So it was a huge victory, but what it basically said is that, um, you know, uh, Madison basically said his, his, his appeal was essentially this, that for the state to financially aid religious institutions in today's faith-based organizations, FBOs, was to empower them to advise, influence, and potentially direct and control the state's social and political infrastructure, as well as to discriminate. Madison understood this. Patrick Henry did not, but today... Henry is resurgent, and thus Madison's concern was, is anything but unfounded. And I take it one step further, Alan. I think the familiar axiom, he who owns the gold makes the rules, actually has the potential of being flipped on its head, and James Madison's concern becomes a present reality. In other words, if you give too much of a seat at the table to faith-based organizations, they're going to say, well... Now, heal the social ills of the land. We want to do more. We want to do this. We have these demands. And you empower them to basically direct and control the state. And that's my concern. That's my major concern in the article is not that faith-based initiatives is wrong in and of itself. In fact, it's constitutional. That's not the issue. The issue is how the monies are used and uh, what regulations are in place. He owns the gold, makes the rules. Well, guess what? The federal government's not making any rules in terms of how that money is being used. Sure, faith-based organizations know out of principle they shouldn't do that, but that's not the point. The point is it won't matter in the end because faith-based organizations will be, feel empowered to basically theologize uh, their use of those monies. And well, that's look, the natural bent. There is an, a built-in discrimination problem when you talk about government funding religious organizations. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm here in Southern California, which is where the Church of Scientology is based, uh, right. which is a church that, you know, many Americans don't want to regard as a church. Now, I'm not going right. to get into that whole dispute. I'm not going to defend the Scientologists or criticize them but simply observe that they also are involved in providing various types of social services, and they would have a claim to grant monies. And there's many that would say, you know, would not want the Scientologists to be dipping into our tax dollars to advance their agenda. 
Uh, and well, and that's no especially doubt, true of their the detoxification programs. Yeah. So, you know, the government in deciding, you know, who's eligible to get these grants, there's certainly, you know, very much the capacity, you know, to make choices as to who's going to get the money. But I, I do feel the need to clarify one point. I don't want our listeners coming away thinking that we're somehow uh, down on proselytizing or down on making converts, uh, you know, uh, far from it. You know, this is a Christian mm-hmm. radio show. We're Good very point. much in favor of the church making disciples of Jesus Christ. But it's the mm-hmm. role of the church, not the state. And I think that's really our key point here is, you know, when the lines are blurred, it's, it's one thing if the Salvation Army, let's say, without government funds, says to people that are being fed in a homeless shelter, uh, you know, we're going to preach a sermon and sing a couple of hymns, and you got to sit here and, and participate in our spiritual program, and then we're going to feed you. You know, what they do without government funds, they can run their program any way they want. It's a free country. But once you have government money and, and you're offering a service that's funded by the government to say, you got to sit through the sermon and sit through the hymns before you get the soup, that's just not good. I've often wondered, though, and I've seen this, and I, I've often wondered, you know, I know a lot of faith-based organizations, auxiliary programs of churches, and they're, they're flush with money. I mean, you know, some might argue otherwise, but everything I've ever seen, they're flush with money, and they're doing quite well. And I've often wondered, why do they need this extra funding? I've never figured that out. Well, so. we're going to leave that question hanging, Greg. We're out of time. Our guest today, Greg Hamilton, president of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association. We've been talking about new wrinkles on the faith-based initiative. As we close, remember here at Freedom's Ring, we don't just talk about religious freedom. We help workers, especially who are suffering religious discrimination. Check out our legal resources page at churchstate.org. Don't forget, friends, freedom is not free. Be informed. Get involved. Join the North American Religious Liberty Association, producer of Freedom's Ring. Join on the web at religiousliberty.info. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.